Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning we are going to go into a message that, I have to be honest, some messages, they flow really easily from like the beginning to the end. Like to start the message is no problem to finish it, but as I was preparing this message today, or for today, I recognized that it was a little bit more difficult than usual. You see, what I recognized in studying for this is that we have to acknowledge that in truth, we have a problem. And I don't say that we have a problem because I just want to catch your attention or to be dramatic here today. But I want to say that we we have a problem that we have to address if we are going to be the church, if we're going to be the men and women, if we're going to be the body of Christ and accomplish all that God has for us. This morning we're going to be looking at what this is, but first we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, starting in verses 7 through 11. Now we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 John chapter 4 today. If you have your physical Bible, you can open up or you can open up to your app. But we're going to start here in chapter 4. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born, whoever loves, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Incredible words spoken in this letter penned by John. And as we read these words speaking about love, we see just how much hinges on our ability to be obedient to this command. We see that in our ability to love, in our ability to abide in Him, that in that we have the ability to live our lives through Jesus. This is an incredible promise. But if we just look at this in the context of of having a problem, we might deduce from this that our problem is that we have a love problem. And in truth, in a way, when we look at the world around us, we could say that we do have a love problem. We have a problem with love. We have a distortion that comes with it. We have a world that preaches love, but embodies selfishness. We have a world that preaches acceptance and practices intolerance. We have a world that looks at love through the lens of convenience and pleasure and then mistakes love for physical gratification. But to say that the world is the only ones that have a love problem would not be correct. Because we as the church also have a love problem. We do a better job than anybody else at speaking about love, but do our actions always back it up? Has our love become conditional? 
Is our love now based out of the ability for someone to deserve and to earn it? You see, I would say that we do have a love problem, but even more than just having a love problem, what we actually have is a sin problem. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. We do have a sin problem. This is once again very clear in the world that we live in. As we look out into culture and to society, who is constantly taking the standard of truth, the understanding of what is good and evil, and pushing it down and to the side to the point where it is no longer recognizable. We live in a world where evil is celebrated, where elementary schools are being exposed to drag shows while parents sit by and celebrate. We live in a time where things that never would have been acceptable are now being promoted and flaunted. We do have a sin problem. It's on display and it's not even being hidden. But here's the thing. We have a much bigger issue when it comes to sin than just what is happening in the world. The problem that I want to address this morning is actually more than sin itself. It's the way that we as the church deal with and respond to sin. It's in the way that we interact with, if I could say it that way, or experience sin. It's the way that we allow sin to change and to distort how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see God. And it's actually the bigger problem that we really need to be aware of here today. We do have a love problem. It is actually a sin problem, but... But even more than that, we go a little bit deeper in a second here. But first, let's just talk about what is sin. Sin is the Greek word hamartia, which simply means to miss the mark. It's guilt and sin, it's fault, it's failure, and it's sinful deeds. And sin, we know, is absolutely the disconnection from a perfect God. But the way that we look at sin really matters because when we look at these verses again, verse 6, verses 5 and 6, they tell us that that God is light and in him there is no darkness and that we're called to walk in the light. And then he writes in verse 7 that we are to fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't say some sin. It doesn't say certain sin. It says all sin. And this word sin is actually the noun in the Greek. So it's not just talking about an action. It is talking about the entirety of sin. 
the concept of sin, the beginning, the, all the things that sin entails, it says that in the blood of Jesus we have been cleansed from all sin. It's a total and it's a complete work. This is the place we have to start. We have to recognize it was a total and it was a complete work. He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. We do have to recognize that sin is a real thing. That sin isn't a concept that was just made up to scare people into loving Jesus, that sin exists. And when John was writing this letter, he very likely would have been referencing and speaking to the Gnostics of the day. The Gnostics were a group of people who believed in God, but not like our God. They just believed in God. They believed in supernatural things. They believed in experiences. This is, this is what their, their, their system of faith was. But they also believed because, you know, there was a God, but God messed up when he made humanity and we were supposed to be perfect and we were perfect, but then he put us in an imperfect place that they didn't actually have sin and that they could do whatever they wanted. They could say, I am without sin, and, but I can still go and, and practice whatever. And, and John says, no, that, that's not true. You have to acknowledge there is sin. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, this is a very complete statement. All unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, and then verse 10 starts with saying, if we say we have not sinned, this is a confession as well. It's just the opposite confession of the truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Because at that point, why did Jesus have to come and die for us? There was a purpose for Jesus coming to this earth and paying the ultimate sacrifice to bring us freedom and forgiveness of sin. And then it says that if you believe this, then his word is not in us. So clearly we see that sin exists. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then we also see very clearly that through Jesus, we are cleansed from all sin. And that if we confess our sins, it says that he is faithful and just. This word faithful means reliable. It means trustworthy. It means that when we go to our Savior, that there is a 100% chance success rate that He is going to answer our cry, that He is going to give us what we need because He is faithful. That's awesome. But the part that really stands out to me is where it says that He is just. He's faithful and He's just. This word means that God looks at the entirety of what Jesus has done And he says it's righteous. He says it's perfect. It it, it says that in the eyes of God, what Jesus has done was once again a complete and a finished work. It wasn't just that, that Jesus is faithful, but also that he is just in the eyes of God. And then if we continue on to the next verse, which is actually chapter two, but we know that in the original letter, there wouldn't have been chapters and verses. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What? Is this an option? 
So, so that you may not sin. And then he says, but if anyone does sin, let's just stop there for a second. I write to you so that you may not sin, but if, if anyone does sin. Okay, so what we have to see here is that the work of Jesus was so complete and it was so powerful that even though we have sinned, it means that we do not any longer have to continue to exist in that old nature. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've never met somebody who has fully started walking in this whole not sinning thing. Like, like it's the truth. What Jesus did was the most powerful act that has ever taken place. We're still all working on it, right? But we do have to acknowledge the power that is available through what Jesus did on the cross instead of going into the foregone conclusion that I am just a failure, just a sinner, destined to continue to repeat the lifestyle that I've lived before this. We sing in this song, you have no rival, you have no equal. Can I tell you that sin and the enemy himself, the devil are not actually a rival or an equal with God? That at best, they are a annoying inconvenience in the plan of redemption? That they have been defeated by what Jesus did? We continue on in this chapter. It says, we have an advocate with the Father. This is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation the atoning sacrifice, the one who satisfies every requirement for the judgment that we deserve. Thank you. So we see here that not only do we have an advocate with the Father, but that we have the Son who paid the price that couldn't be paid by anybody else, but when he did it, he did it in completeness, in fullness, lacking nothing. And he did this for our sins. And it says not only for our sins, but also for who else? The sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, so we understand that what Jesus did, the propitiation, he took our place. He was the perfect sacrifice. And that in that, we now have redemption from sin. And that the way that we understand that we fully believe and we're walking in the truth of what he has done is that there is going to start being a difference in our behavior. That there is going to be a different outcome in our lives because we are no longer living according to the old mindset that says, I am a failure. But we are living according to the new mindset where it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, that we are going to be living our lives through Christ Jesus. That when we understand that we are living our lives through Christ Jesus, that we understand that there is a new reality, that there is a new behavior, that there is an obedience that is now possible that was not possible before the person of Jesus. So conceptually, we understand this. Prayerfully, as sons and daughters of God, we have received this and know that it is true. 
But I want to just ask the question, what impact has this new reality had on the way that we look at sin and the way that we love people? I think, in all honesty, the way that we treat and interact with sin, it shows us that sin is actually not the problem. I would say sin is a problem. No question about that. But I would say when it comes to our love problem, even more than the problem of sin in our lives, we actually have a fear problem. Nobody is questioning the reality of sin and the devastating effects of sin. But the question is, should we be afraid of sin? I would say no, but guess what? Sin to us is very scary. Sin is scary. We don't like to look at it, to talk about it. We certainly don't like to have it in our lives because we know that the results of sin are definitely scary. But is sin the thing that we're talking about that has been defeated once and for all by the Savior of the universe who lives inside of us? Is it something that we're meant to be afraid of? Absolutely not. But are we? Yes. Very often we are. We're scared of it because we know how controlling and damaging it can be. So what we try to do then is we try to adhere to the regulations that we believe are going to keep us safe. But the regulations, the rules, and the law, without the empowerment of the Savior that gives us the ability to walk in the grace of God is simply religion. I I just want to say this again. I know you heard me, but I want to say it again. When we are simply adhering to rules and regulations as our Savior from the sin, trying to do better and to be better in the flesh without inviting Jesus, the Savior of the world, into the circumstance with us, We are not practicing redemption or the new life that he has for us. We are practicing religion. John goes on to say, and this is in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John said this is actually an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment. How is that possible? Well, he's saying this commandment not to sin is not something new. We've been over this from Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament, the sacrifices, all the things that had to be done into the New Testament. But it's also a New Testament. It's also a new commandment. Because now, instead of you having to do all the work on your own, you now have a Savior that walks with you into the new covenant. It's not new. We know that we should not be sinning. We know that there is brokenness. We know that these things exist in our life. But that was the old commandment that said, okay, now you have to fix it and you have to do something about it. But these verses that we're reading about Jesus cleansing us from all sin and unrighteousness, It means that we no longer have to do it on our own. The new commandment is that we trust in Him. And it says that this is true in Him and also in you. 
It's true in Jesus, and it's also true in us. This is an amazing truth. This is true in him, in Jesus, and in us. But we don't always see it that way. We often just look at sin as this scary thing. And as scary as we see it inside of us, well, we're way worse when it comes to other people. We said we have a love problem, right? But a love problem that's actually a sin problem, but a sin problem that's actually a fear problem. When we look at the sin in others, we are afraid of it. And so we try to do things in order to to fix them or to make it not so bad. But guess what? Jesus was not afraid of sin. Our example, the one that we're meant to follow after, and also the one, by the way, that went into all of the places with all of the people that were not just the sinners, right? You have the regular sinners, but the real sinners. Like the tax collectors, the real sinners. You had the broken, the prostitutes, the thieves, the people that were the outcasts in society. Jesus went directly to them. And was he afraid of their sin? Absolutely not. He went and put himself right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of the leprosy. Right in the middle of the disease. Right in the middle of the sickness, both physical and internal. He went right to it because he was not afraid of the sin. But who was afraid of the sin? Because there was somebody who was afraid of the sin. Let's look at this quote from Danny Silk from the book called Culture of Honor. It says, In the presence of sin, the Pharisees were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they had no means by which to fix the problem. They just had more religion. They just had more law. They just had more restriction. But it says, When Jesus was in the presence of sin, He was the solution. He was the remedy. He was not a victim to it. He was powerful. My question today is, are we powerful or are we simply fearful in the presence of sin? Do we follow the example of the Pharisees who try to fix it all through outward means or do we walk in the example of Jesus to walk as powerful men and women who know that our Savior has already overcome and defeated sin once and for all? What's the understanding that we have? These last few weeks we've been talking about our pursuit of people. Loving people really well. But we have to be very aware of the places that we have allowed sin to be the thing that has prevented us from seeing others the way that Jesus did and loving really well. Jesus was not afraid of sin. Historically, though, the church have been the ones very afraid of sin and have tried to fix all the situations by telling people this is what you have to do and then we wonder why people don't want to come to church we've been the ones who have said do this this and this and it's all going to be okay and then they find out that it's not and then we wonder why don't they want to come back I was playing uh, softball a couple years ago and I was inviting, inviting one of my teammates to come to church with me and he said man if I came to church I would just burst into flames I think I've told this story before, but I'm like, 
not physically possible one. Um, two, very much not biblical. But this is your perception of what church is. I am a failure. I am a sinner. And if I walk into a place that is holy, then I am going to have some kind of reaction. I'm certainly not going to be received well. I'm certainly not going to be loved well. And there's not going to be any change on the other side of it. This has been the result of more religion than grace, more rules than the understanding of who Jesus is, and certainly not being powerful people. You see, we do this in our lives, and it is religion, and and we don't just do it to the world, but we also then do it to our spouse. I'm going to camp there for a second. We do it to our children, we do it to our family members. We try to fix them. And it's in a good, with a good heart. We, we certainly want the best for them. But it's because we're afraid of, of the sin. This is what my life was like for a lot of youth group. I'd have these young people coming in, dealing with so many things. And I'm like, do you know what it's like, just question, to, to, to try to fix things in teenagers? Anybody? Few of us. I've never had teenagers myself, just as a youth pastor. I'm looking at these problems that they're dealing with, and they're scary. As a youth pastor, I'm standing there. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. It's scary sometimes what our young people are dealing with, what they're going through, the battles that they're fighting, the things that they're up against, the culture that they're exposed to. Not just the music, but the music needs to be changed. And, and not just the identity issues, because those are really important. But, but all of these things that we talk about, and, and the attractions, and, and sex, and drugs, and all these things that exist. And we're trying to fix it, because we want them to do better and to be better. But if all that we have to offer them is more rules and restrictions, instead of the truth of who God is, and what Jesus has done, we're never going to get results that come from the kingdom, instead of what come from us. We can't be those who are afraid of the sin and that it blocks us from seeing the truth and the identity of who they are in Christ. First John chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'm not going to read the whole part today. Let's just read verse 18 or 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no... You got it up there? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, we got this fear-punishment paradigm of I'm broken, I've messed up, I'm not good enough, and all that I deserve is punishment. Or we have the truth of what Jesus says about us. That yes, in your sins and in your brokenness and in the past, you were that person. You were walking in the ways of the world. You were broken and you were sinful. But through the blood of Jesus that cleanses all sin and brings you into a place of righteousness, that is no longer your identity. We don't have to be afraid of punishment. We do have to live a new life. We do have to make the right decisions, but we don't do it out of our flesh once again. We do it out of trust in the Savior. 
We do it through the grace of God, which is the only power in the universe that can actually bring us freedom and transform us. We have to know this. So the question is, are we walking in fear or love? Fear always leads to yet another problem, though. When we encounter fear, we have two options. To love or to control. And what I've come to find is that maybe our love problem is not just a fear problem and not just a sin problem, but that it's even more so a control problem. Now I want to say fear and control can be, you know, we can switch these around, but, but we often have this control problem because what we do when we fear something is then we try to grab a hold and, and, and fix that thing. And if we can't fix that thing, then we try to grab control of something else because we just need to be in control. I feel like I don't have the answers for the situation that I'm facing. I feel like my kids are spiraling out of control. I feel like my marriage is in turmoil. I feel like the world around me is in that place. I don't have control, so I have to grab control of something. And so we go to control because we want to have the answers, but control is the very opposite of going to God and trusting in Him and what He has done. And then when people don't want to be controlled around us, well, then we step into the next problem was that it's just not about fear and not about control, but then we step into judgment. They don't want to be controlled by me because they can see clearly this isn't working anyway. But if they don't agree with me, then something's wrong with them. And so I judge them and I judge their sin and I'm afraid of what they're doing. And so I'm just going to separate myself from them. You see, it just continues level by level, layer by layer. I want to read this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from The Cost of Discipleship. He said, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. When we step into judgment, we're not stepping into grace. We're not walking in love. We're not looking at a new identity. We're walking based out of our need to have some semblance of control in our lives. But love, the thing we are in pursuit of, the thing that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks leading up to this, in pursuit of people, loving people really well, it requires us to understand this grace for them, but also this grace for ourselves that we experience what Jesus has done for us. 1 John chapter 4, 19-20 says, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must love his brother. We have to get to the root of this if we are going to walk in love if we are going to address this problem of why we are not walking fully in love, we have to ask, what's the actual problem here? It would be an oversimplification to say we just have to love better. It would be an oversimplification to, just say, to say we just need to do better in this area. We just have to love better. But we actually have to look to the problem that exists beneath all of these things. It's the problem that we call 
shame. It is the sin that distorts our perception. It's the thing that that has a voice in our life that allows us to so, so quickly step into these other places we talked about, to fear, to control, and to judgment. And then it's because of the shame that we allow to cause us that, that we don't see ourselves through the finished work of Jesus. We simply see ourselves through our brokenness, through our hurt, through our past, through the lies, to the lineage of our family, to whatever it is. It's the, it's the lineage that we actually walk into because of the first decision that was made in the garden by Adam and Eve to eat the apple. It says that they ate of the fruit and they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So they hid themselves. How often in our lives do we walk in the same lineage that has come from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and we walk in that place of shame and brokenness, acknowledging and and believing that that is more our identity than the new lineage, the new heritage, the new ability that we have to walk in freedom through the Lord Jesus Christ. But so often we allow shame to be the thing that determines and dictates our future because once again we've gone into control and to fear and to all these other things to take our attention away from the real problem. I don't know who I am in my Savior. I don't know who I've been created to be. I don't know what has been made fully available to me through the cross of Jesus. Once again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, I believe. Let me make sure this is right. For verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest in us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What does that mean? It means we have a new identity. It means we have a new heritage that is from the Savior. But we as the church, we as the sons and daughters of God, have to be the first ones to get this if we are ever going to bring it out into the world around us. We have to be the ones who live this out in our lives personally if we're ever going to see transformation in our children and our grandchildren and our family members and our brothers and sisters in the people around us. We have to get this first. You see, this is much more than a love problem. It's much more than a lack of love. It's a place that we are still living out of brokenness. It's a place where we know the truth. But do we actually believe that it's true in my life? Do we actually believe that what God said is the truth? 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-21 through 21 in the Passion Translation says this, Whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience and that he knows everything there is to know about us. My delightfully loved friends, when our hearts don't condemn us, when our hearts no longer condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak face to face with God. My question is, when we have that freedom and confidence to speak face to face with God, what is he saying to us? What is he telling us? What is the identity that he has spoken over our lives? 
Because if we have accepted, received, grabbed a hold of any other identity than the one that comes from Him, then who are we listening to? Not the Father, the defeated enemy, the one who wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We have been called to do incredible things on this earth. We have been called to walk in power and authority, to bring freedom and to bring restoration, to bring healing, to walk. And Jesus said to do greater things than he even did. But first, we got to understand the basics. And we have to be aware that we are no longer called to walk in fear because perfect love casts out all fear. 